Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane, of uh, the Rocketeer Minute and the Apollo 13 Minute. And I'm Chris Henry from the Apollo 13 Minute as well. And Chris, they thought they could get rid of us, but we're we're back again. We're but back. Uh, we're we're back, and and this is these are our two weeks, darn it! And we're gonna yeah. we're gonna make the most of them. Absolutely. Uh, and I know in advance, since we're do, we're doing all this out of order, so we know in advance that there are some ultra super guests coming up, some major things that we discovered about the film that we didn't even know was there. So it's just we got the A team here, <laughs> definitely <laughs> definitely going good. Um, but we're we're starting here on minute eighty one. Gosh, we're uh, we're not quite in the second half of the movie. We're actually going to get to the second half next week. So, uh, but here we're just finishing up the last the last five minutes of the first half of the movie, and we start with uh, Marie answering the door and uh looking at uh, we finish with uh, marie pointing at uh pictures of a bunch of uh b-17s so uh lots of things going on in this minute uh this is the first time we're seeing uh fred in uh in civilian clothes and uh, kind of as shocking as uh <laughs> as, as uh, marie is yeah so um, i'm just trying to imagine what you're what a suit that you haven't worn in three years would be like sitting in the back of somebody's closet. It must, <laughs> he says he had to get it out of mothballs, so you know he's walking in smelling like naphtha. Yeah, and uh, Marie, you know it, it, this this is kind of a moment where, you know, I think in the film, for a lot of it, Marie is is, I don't want to say the villain, but she is certainly you know the bad person somewhat. Yeah, but but I don't think she was truly bad like i think it was just she didn't realize what she was getting into immediately thrown by a massive amount of separation where your partner goes through a life-changing event without you and then comes home so you got hit with kind of more than one thing and i i kind of think marie gets a bum rap a little because yeah she's young she you know look she got married and then literally her her significant other took off went to war which completely changed him and then comes back. So on top of trying to figure out how to just be together as a married couple and as a couple in general, because they hadn't been together that long. Um, you know, you've also got someone who's, who, you know, has been through something traumatic and really has PTSD, but it wasn't really diagnosed then. Um, so, you know, she's kind of handed a fixed deck a little bit. I, I yeah. wouldn't say she's the greatest person in the world, but she's, She's facing a lot too, and I think that's something to talk about. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that she gets, she does get a bum rap here because it's, yeah. And the other part of it is, is that she's had her own life. She's she's been on her own for a couple of years now, as you know, she's a married woman, so she can she can wave a ring, you know, the ring on her finger, and keep the guys off of her at the the Blue Devil or whatever the nightclub that she's working at. And she's really self-sufficient. She's earning an income. I mean, she gets uh, she gets the allotment checks from Fred, but uh, but she's used to having a life where she's on her own, and uh, she seems to be maybe not thriving, but she's surviving quite well. She seems very very happy with her life, and you know, Fred has this mystical image of his wife as being uh, she's she's that girl in the you know, in the that girl in the picture that's sitting on his plexiglass window in the in his in his office up in the air, um, but he doesn't. He like he could ascribe feelings to her that she might not have had. She or attitudes or uh, things like that. They both have this dream idea of what their spouse is like, um, 
And it's, you know, and this is a common theme. I mean, we'll see this picked up in, in other movies. I mean, I, most common one I can think of nowadays would be The Hurt Locker, which I think is, is pretty much telling the same story about what it's like for some of these guys coming home. Um, but, you know, it, it's a common thing that they've both they've both grown in different directions and maybe not in a common direction. So just, uh, yeah, it's, it, this is the beginning of a start of a tragedy, but she's still trying to, she's not, angry at him she's just kind of like stunned that oh this is what this is what the guy i married looks like <laughs> when he's not wearing all those medals yeah but you could see him you know the minute he walks in she definitely deflates a little bit like you could see yeah. it um but then you know when he's you know it's interesting because she's not disinterested in his life like when he you know he brings her the stuff from paris which she's you know over the moon about and then, you know, he shows her a picture of B-17s in formation, you know, and she's engaged enough to ask about, like, what, what the flak is and what that's about. And, you know, so it's not like she just blew him off of, like, here's my gifts, great, bye. You know, like, she was really interested in what is this photo, what is that stuff that's around your airplane, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I just, it, it, for some reason, I, I remember this movie, I just remember her as being, like, the awful person. And then when you watch this under a little bit more, I guess, um, educated eyes, you're kind of like, well, I don't think she was awful. It was just, it was a really bad situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's she's asking him, um, you know, who, you know, ba- basically she's asking him, who are you? And it's, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's kind of like that old line. I, I know this is this is an old reach back of uh, uh, Police Squad, the the, the Les- Leslie Nielsen show that was you know based off of, uh, uh, but it's uh there's a line that he has one of my favorite lines where he shows up at uh at this uh mafiosa type uh boss headquarters and the the guy looks at him and said who are you and how did you get in here and he said i'm i'm the locksmith and i'm the locksmith <laughs> but i was i was you know i was looking at these pictures and i was thinking marie was saying well you know what was your life like and and why were they shooting yeah. at you well i'm a bomb i was a bombardier and i was a bombardier <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. By the way, yeah. I always thought he was Enrique Palazzo, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> my day is complete. I've somehow worked Enrique Palazzo there you in go. my day. But, but um, you know, I, the thing that I walked away with with the veterans, and we may have talked about this before. We might talk about this in a future episode. But imagine flying thirty-five missions in the nose of a B seventeen. You're dropping yeah. bombs every mission. You're seeing your friends die every mission. You're seeing them come back wounded. You're seeing members of your own crew uh, possibly killed. You know, you're risking your own life over these, these uh, you know, hazardous missions over Germany. And then you come back to a world where none of nobody's experienced any of this. And that's all a, a foreign language. And you, how, do you, how do you tell someone about it? You know, I mean, when you're telling somebody like, well, this is flack. Oh, okay. You know, there's like little puffs of smoke. Like, yeah, but, you know, on a daily mission, flak was a big part of your daily briefing of where were the cannons, how many, you know, how could you avoid them in and out. And Yeah, yeah, doing those those 30-second turns and, and trying to figure out, you know, drop a 1,000 feet, yeah. go up a 1,000 feet. Yeah, and, and here you are, you're, you're, you're trying to explain to somebody what this even is, and then, you know, not let alone that you've seen what it can do. And you're talking to a whole group of people who just who know nothing of it. And yeah. uh, I, I could see why veterans feel, 
you know, sometimes, like I said, when we have aluminum overcast or the B25 you know, Berlin Express out, where veterans suddenly feel they can open up to because we can all speak the same language. We weren't there. I wasn't there. But I know what it is, and I know what it did. And, you know, at least I speak that language a little bit. And I, I could, God, that had to have been really hard. And this movie does yeah. a great job of, of, of showing that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we should talk a little bit uh, about your about your book that, uh, that as we're recording, this was pretty recent to, to come out, um, about B-17 veterans, pilots, navigators, bombardiers, gunners that lived through all this. And now as they're, you know, they're in their 80s and or they're in their 90s now, um, this is their la- our last chance to talk with them firsthand and find out what their experiences was and how it's affected their lives. Um, and your book really does a great job in covering that both, you know, you think about these guys that are, they're 19 years old, they're 20 years old. And now, you know, if, if you're talking to people in their 90s, looking back at what they were, you know, what their lives were like at 20, it was a high and low point of their lives, but it's, it, it had such an impact on the rest, uh, on, you know, on, on the rest of their days. Um, it, it's just it so many amazing stories in that book. I appreciate it. Yeah, the book is The Final Mission, and uh, myself and our, uh, our esteemed colleague and friend, Hal Bryan, wrote it together. Um, and, you know, there are, there are hundreds of books written about the B-17, uh, where we're really proud this one is different is it's about the people. It's very much a people story. This is about the veterans, uh, and it all revolves around us taking our B-17, the Lunum Overcast, out on tour, and the veterans that came out to fly with us, and the stories that they would then tell next to the airplane. If you talk to anybody who volunteers in a museum or volunteers with uh, flying warbirds, they will tell you that when you take these planes somewhere or when groups come in, veterans open up when they get near the airplane. And we've all heard these powerful stories, but we really never saw a way where it was written down before. And we thought, while we still have them and we can interview them, let's interview the vets that are coming out to fly in the airplane. Let's you know, talk with them, and if they're comfortable, share their photos from World War II. So a lot of the photos that are in that book uh, are not widely produced photos. They're private photos from their photo albums that they were willing to share with us for the book. Um, the uh, the thing that that really stood out with me is imagine doing something that you were so proud of when you were just out of high school, like that age, that... 70, 75, even 80 years later, how you want to be remembered in history is by that event. You know, yeah. you, you want to be remembered as a tail gunner, 91st bomb group. Um, I think the most powerful story that stands out for me in the entire book is the dedication that they felt to each other as a crew. Uh, is this one veteran, uh, Fred Zerbachen, this one veteran that we had, um, he was wounded. He was a ball turret gunner. Uh, he was hit by a piece of shrapnel from flak uh, through his knee. Um, they got back to base, and basically they lifted him. They had to lift him out of the ball turret. And uh, as he was going to the base hospital, they said, you know, there's a, the doctor said there's a chance you're going to lose your leg. And uh, through surgery, uh, he did not have to lose his leg. However, uh, 10 days later, he's still in the hospital. And he finds out that his crew is going to fly a mission with a replacement ball turret gunner because he's wounded. And Fred is like, no way. 
Uh, I'm the best ball turret gunner in the 8th Air Force. You know, everybody felt that way about their position. And he had his crew uh, smuggle in his flight gear, uh, his two waist gunners that he dressed in the hospital, and then one under each arm, they picked him up and lifted him up and carried him back out to the airplane, and he went back to flying his missions in the ball turret. Uh, I mean, and at the time he did this, he was 17 years old. I mean, yeah. Yeah, That's our World War II guys. <laughs> it's yeah, it's so it, it, there. There's such a, it's it's beyond family. The com the camaraderie is like these. They're like Siamese twins. I mean, it's just everybody, everybody pulled for the for the group, and you didn't you didn't want to be left be left out, even even if it's a mission of you know such extreme danger. And and, and we know you know ball turret gunners. They couldn't even the, the the room was so tight in there they couldn't even wear a parachute. So yeah, if something so. went wrong with the plane, you're going down with that plane. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's such, there, there's a reason they're called the greatest generation and that's, you know, the, it, stories like that really underline it deeply. Yeah. Um, from what I understand and the, the pictures that we're seeing on the, uh, uh, that Fred's spinning through, these are from William Wyler's personal collection because, you know, he was flying with, uh, B-17 groups overseas when he was making Memphis Bell. Um. And I have to point out, as you know, as we can freeze frame on these things, the very last couple of seconds of this, when we're looking at the uh, the pictures of the B-17s, whoever handled that negative uh, was really uh, troublesome with their thumb because it's a giant thumbprint that covers <laughs> the entire uh, enlargement there. So apparently it's on the original film. Um, but yeah, this is uh, this is kind of a, a semi uh, cameo for uh, for William Wyler because that's. That's hit from his personal collection. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, and I think it took it took a Wyler to make uh, to make a movie like this because I think he truly understood pe- people that you know Ford and Capra and and Wyler all all these people that flew on missions. I think they understood what these guys were going through and tried to uh, express that sense of camaraderie. I mean, we're seeing this through the uh, movie, and I know a lot of the other hosts have said this before. Um, but there is such, um, these, these three guys are, they spend one night together in a B-17 and they're, you know, they're blood brothers because that's, that's the way it was being in the war. You had to trust the people that you were, you know, basically barracked with. Um, and, uh, and this, this really draws it out quite well. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm impressed, you know, it, it's this this movie could so easily have not been made but it was you know such an important thing at the time and it's a great it's a great record for us uh, to see what it, you know what the attitudes were back then uh, and this is you know this is William Wyler's interpretation of what what it was like getting out of getting out of the fort you know military uh, at that time um i was wondering on these pictures that he brought home the the bomb hits on on Dusseldorf uh, how classified were those at the time they were doing? I mean, I guess all this stuff was declassified after the war, but it would seem like if you had a bunch of these things sticking around, this this doesn't seem like something you'd want to carry with you to show, you know, like in case you were, I mean, I guess he left them back in his barracks or something, but um, I would imagine that would not be something you'd want to carry on a B-17. <laughs> yeah, so, oh yeah, you would. so he wouldn't carry those on the missions. Yeah. Um, those were, uh, so the, a lot of folks don't realize B-17s had a camera in the bomb be- or in the belly. Uh, basically, uh, it was just rear of the bomb bay, almost, uh, 
uh, like around where the ball turret, uh, or I'm sorry, where the radio room is, uh, is in the floor of the radio room. And um, it was a strike camera, uh, so it would actually record the, uh, the impact, and then uh, you can go home and see your strike. Uh, this would all be developed back at the base, and if you had a really good mission, they would give you um, sort of a trophy, a strike photo of look at that, you hit right, you know, you hit right in the factory that you were supposed to be hitting. Um, so yeah, he wouldn't carry those with him. I, I do know a bombardier who had his. Um, so at some point uh, when he came home from the war, he was actually able to take his home with him. Um, I think that was probably a later war thing. I think early on, like 43 or so, they weren't giving you your strike photos, of course, because you're going to go back there. But toward the end of the war, and, and certainly when the war ended, they were probably, you know, they let these guys have them. But yeah, I do know one bombardier that did have them. Yeah, and and I I would think that the uh, the bombing runs became more frequent, so it might have not, not have been you know it's like okay tomorrow we're going out here and you might get this maybe a day or two later. Just I, I wouldn't imagine it would be that immediate if you're they they were doing almost continuous bombing toward like the end of forty four and forty five. Oh yeah, uh, end yeah. of forty five. So it's like just keep just keep going in and aim for Berlin and. Um, That's right. <laughs> uh, what was what was the uh, how far east were they bombing? I, I was I was always wondered about. I, I haven't been able to find out how far east the strikes were because I would imagine they wouldn't go to the you know the Russian front lines, but uh, probably for pretty far in. Yeah, they would go pretty far. I I'd have to look at a you know map and bomb group records and stuff like that. Of course, uh, and then you even had the shuttle missions where you, they actually did uh, uh, they took off at one base, bombed, then landed. Uh, you know I. Was it in Russia? I can't remember where they where they landed. Yeah, I, yeah. I know there were there were like those. Yeah, they, they would. It was almost like a relay system that they just keep going and going. Yeah, yeah. Now that wasn't the normal. Normal, you could go so far, bomb and back. I mean, going to Berlin was a big deal. That was that was far and it was dangerous. Yeah, uh, I know. I, I know my my dad was in the Ninth Air Force, and he was with the three eighty six bomb group. They were using um, uh, Liberators twenty fours. Oh, very and, cool. Um, and they moved from, they were in East Anglia. They had about the, uh, I think they had a, a slightly shorter range than the beast. I'm, I, I'm not that great. You're better at this than I am. The, the 17s had a, had a longer range, but the B-24s were faster. So they could, they could, they, they could maneuver a little bit more than the, than the 17s. But, uh, he was in East Anglia at, uh, Great Dunmo and they would bomb, um, uh, factories in like, uh, that little curve in uh, Jutland, like where Denmark meets Germany, they, they bombed a lot in there, I know. And uh, a lot of the industrial uh, sites up, up in the, up in that area. Um, but then his, his group was moved after D-Day, they moved to, um, uh, they moved to France just West of Paris. And then uh, in 1945, they moved them into Belgium. So he was just kind of tracking with, uh, you know, as the armies advanced in there, they would they would move in and these, but they he said that they would make, they usually would do one a day when they were in England, but then when uh, when they were uh, moving into France and Belgium, it was almost like a commuter run. They they were making like two or three runs per day, just yeah. going from Belgium into Germany, back load up, come back, bomb some more, and just keep going. And then they got into. Um, you know, it's like the day, the daytime bombing became so easy for them because the the anti aircraft was getting knocked out um, that that they would just just do multiple missions every day. Um, but Im- imagine how taxing that was on the crews. Um, wow. So, well, 
anyway, we've we've got lots more to talk about with uh, aerial warfare and and what what they had to fight, fight against. But let's let's talk about that a bit tomorrow. Uh, for folks listening in, by the way, uh, Chris and I finished a, a great. I think it's a great series. I think Chris, you yeah, think it's a great series. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Series. Yeah, we did uh we did the Apollo 13 minute where we covered uh, Ron Howard's movie uh one minute at a time just like we're doing this. And uh if you you know, if you like that, please check us out. That's always available out on uh the uh our big website at Apollo 13 minute and we're also available wherever you got this you probably get us uh iTunes, Spotify. Um you can find the Best Minutes podcast the one you're listening to right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Play or at the main site thebestminutes.com. Uh, if you want to uh, talk back to us, and we are getting a lot of conversations back and forth uh, on social media, so if you want to uh, jump in with us on Facebook, that's available at Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe out there on Facebook, and also on Twitter at the Best at the Best Minutes. So anyway, we will uh, check back with you. Check back with us here tomorrow, and we'll talk a little bit more uh, Army or Air, Army Air Corps warfare. Uh, that's hard to say, <laughs> uh, but uh, join us here next time on the Best Minutes podcast.